we are engaged in a spiritual battle. And whether we like it or not, that is the case. And there are two very distinct sides to this battle, and each has two very distinct goals. On the one side, you have God, uh, his angels who serve him, and the Christians who help God in his mission. And the goal of God and his Christians is to save lost souls. Very simple, very concise. That is the mission. Then on the other side, you have Satan and his demons, or the fallen angels. And their goal is also very, uh, very short, concise. It is to keep souls from being saved. And in between these two sides are the people that are being fought over, that this spiritual battle is being waged over. And those are the lost souls. Both sides are trying to in some way have some level of influence over this one target demographic, which are those who are not saved, those who have not heard and received the gospel, the good news of eternal life of Jesus Christ. Now, notice that when we uh, just very clearly and distinctly show who is on what side and what the goals are, that those who aren't uh, on God's side, the humans who are not on God's side, are not by default actively working for or in allegiance with Satan and his demons. Now, it may be in the case that in some extreme examples that may be true, but for most people in our lives who we would recognize are not saved, we wouldn't say that they're in any direct relationship or intentionally trying to be antagonistic towards God and his goals. The lost souls are not working in allegiance for either side. They are the people that are trying to be one to either side, either for God or for Satan. And that's a very important distinction to make, that the lost souls that we are fighting to get into heaven, into the kingdom of God, they are not the enemy that we are facing. The enemy that we face is Satan and his demons who are trying to actively thwart our goal. But the lost souls that are being fought over, they are not our enemy. And it's a very important distinction to make because often we make the mistake of confusing that. And we often make the mistake and believe that other human beings are our enemy in this spiritual battle. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. And the Apostle Paul is really quite clear in telling us in this spiritual battle, this is who the true enemy is. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, he's just about to tell his readers the importance of wearing the armor of God. These are spiritual qualities that are given by the Holy Spirit to help us in this battle. And so in order to know what we need protection from, the Apostle Paul first tells us who it is that we are fighting against. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And this is a very common way of saying the totality of a human being. A human being is made up of flesh and blood. 
So he couldn't be more clear. We do not wrestle against other human beings, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So Paul very clearly says the enemy that we are fighting against in the spiritual battle, they are spiritual beings. They are Satan and his demons, those spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. He also calls them the rulers of the darkness of this age. And he goes on to say that they, are, they work in principalities and powers. And herein lies a very important distinction that we need to understand in the spiritual battle. That though we might see other human beings committing evil, Paul says that the true evil and the true enemy behind that is always a spiritual force. That behind earthly powers and principalities that we may see uh, actively trying to work against the work of God, he says the real enemy behind that is not flesh and blood, but our spiritual forces that we are fighting against. So our enemies are not other human beings. They are the spiritual forces that we are working against. And that means that every human being is a lost... uh, Every human being who is not on the side of God is not only a lost soul, but is our mission field. Every person who does not know about Jesus or has not yet accepted the gospel is our mission field. But of course, Satan wants to thwart us from that mission. And one of the easiest things he can do and one of the best tactics he has is to make Christians and humanity in general believe that other human beings are the true enemy. That the war that we face is against flesh and blood. And when our focus is taken away from Satan and it's put onto other human beings, we not only are losing the battle because we're not facing the true enemy... But we're also not fulfilling the mission that we have on God's side anymore. We're no longer thinking evangelistically. We're no longer thinking in a missional context because we're perceiving other human beings not as our mission field, but as our enemies. So how does Satan do this? How does Satan distract Christians and humanity at large from uh, viewing him and his allies as the enemy? Well, one of the best ways to do this is really simple, and it's simply through tribalism. And tribalism is the mindset that you get into small little groups, small communities, and then you put some sort of wall or some sort of circle around your little camp, and then that becomes an exclusive community. People are not allowed to come in, and your tribe, you have complete loyalty and devotion to your tribe, And you are are antagonistic and you become enemies of other tribes. And this uh, tribalism really has gone through lots of different names. It's come under lots of different ideologies and philosophies through time. But at the core, it's this tribal mentality of us versus them. My tribe versus your tribe. And when we get into that mindset, it's you are my enemy. So what is perhaps one of the most recent uh, examples of this tribalism, we see crop up in a lot of philosophy, and it's come into our world today. And in order to do this, we're going to have to look just briefly at a little bit of history and a little bit of philosophy, but I promise you 
that it is integral to our understanding of how we operate and how we work as Christians, as Christian soldiers in this spiritual battle in our day and age today. And it is incredibly important to understand the mindset of those we're trying to save in order to know where they're coming from and how to best witness to them. And what we're going to discuss today is probably the most pervasive, one of the most pervasive worldviews that we are interacting with on a daily basis. So, this new development of tribalism. What is uh, this new philosophy? Well, it was invented uh, by a philosopher by the name of Karl Marx. Now, you may uh, be well uh, antiquated with uh, Karl Marx and his philosophy, aptly named after him, of Marxism. And here was the theory that Marx had, that all of human history could be summarized as a struggle between different classes in society. And primarily, he looked at it as the rich versus the poor. Here's a direct quote from his from the Communist Manifesto. He says, The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. The free man and the slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, Guildmaster and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed. And so this was his uh, view of the world, that people would fit into two categories in society. And these categories would always be oppressor and oppressed. And regardless of what time period it was and what structures there were in society, there would always be two classes constantly fighting against each other, the oppressor and the oppressed. And primarily at the time which he was writing, he classified that as the rich versus the poor. Now, what is the end consequence of that sort of philosophy, of that mindset in a person? If we view society as just a struggle between two different classes, two different groups, the inevitable consequence is that these two groups begin to see each other as their enemies. The two groups are now in their own different tribes. And not only that, but each tribe can now feel morally justified in feeling hatred and anger towards the other side. For those who see themselves as the oppressed, the rich are taking all of the resources, the money. And so they can feel morally justified in being angry at those who are better off than them in society. For the oppressed who are now experiencing this pressure, they feel threatened by Uh, these people who are questioning them and their wealth and their status. And so what this inevitably always leads to is revolution. It leads to war. It leads to bloodshed. And everywhere that we've seen Marxism applied in history, we've only ever seen it lead to revolution, to war, to death, to famine. Uh, The Russian Revolution, we've seen it in communist China, we see it in Venezuela today. Everywhere it leads... It instills in the human mind the idea that there are two groups, there are two tribes, and they are in conflict with one another, and that the other people are the enemy. Now, you may be thinking, okay, that seems a little bit, uh, you know, uh, a little bit old school to bring up Karl Marx. Where do we see anything relevant to Marxism today in our society? Well, Marxism is completely pervasive in much of the Western world. And it really came about uh, 
during the 50s and 60s, it became very popular, and we had a generation of people uh, go through uh, education, with instilled in, uh, this philosophy into their minds, and we are still experiencing it today. And most Western education systems that you come across, uh, a, a variation of this philosophy is taught. And if you turn on the news, you're going to encounter this idea. If you read newspapers, you will encounter this philosophy. It is inescapable now in our day and age, which is why it's so integral for us to understand where its origins are and it historically where it leads us. Because now the class struggles are no longer between just the rich and just the poor. We've created more and more categories for people to fit into of oppressor and oppressed. We've created more and more ways to further divide people and further create tribes everywhere we look. These are the most common ones that you'll come across today. Well, classes of oppressor and oppressed. Uh, we have the rich and the poor remains consistent. We have a war that has been trying to divide men and women from each other. Uh, you are constantly hearing of the, the constant evils that men are doing in society, of how they are the oppressor class of Western society. In America, America particularly, the race relations between uh, white and black Americans is at its all-time worst. The tensions are so difficult and they're so, uh, everyone has to walk on ice because the idea that the white people in American society and largely in most Western countries are a class of oppressors has divided the people. Because now the white and uh, black people unfortunately see each other as their enemies. The sexual liberation movement in the 50s and 60s has eventuated to where we see our society now where being heterosexual is seen as being an oppressor class in our society. And of course because Christians predominantly uh, are, um, hold uh, their predominant religious class in most Western countries, other faiths are seen as being oppressed by Christians. Now, when you look at that, that is a recipe for disaster. To have a worldview in which we believe that these two sides of everything are constantly fighting, that there is classes of oppressor and oppressed, it really just leads to animosity, to conflict, to anger, to bitterness. And that's what we see all around us in our society today. Now, you may look at that list and realize something. I'm public enemy number one. I'm pretty much the worst person in the world. According to this philosophy, uh, I'm pretty much the scum of the earth. Uh, maybe not rich, but I'm certainly not poor. I'm well off. I'm a man, I'm white, I'm heterosexual, and I'm Christian. I'm literally uh, the worst person that a Marxist can think of. Now, if you know me, and many of you do, you know I'm a decent person. If you're into me, I'll probably help you. I'm not going to do anything to harm you. And I'm certainly not oppressing anyone in society. I've never actively done anything to oppress people. And yet this philosophy says that myself, I'm the, I'm the worst person in society by far. That someone like me would be someone to revolt against, to rebel against. And really what I find interesting is the reason for wanting to rebel against this person is primarily due to the way that they were born. And I find that very fascinating that discriminating against someone based on the way they were born, we would define as racism. 
And yet here we see a different version of that, and yet we can feel morally justified in this, uh, in this way of discrimination. It's very sneaky. It's a very sneaky way of manipulating people into seeing each other as their enemies. We're really dealing with a new form of tribalism in which all of society is put into two categories, into two groups, and it pits humanity against one another. Now, where do Christians fall into this? We see this all around us today, but how do we as Christians fall into this? I think there are two ways that we can make mistakes and fall into this trap of thinking. The first is that we agree with uh, this model, this worldview, and in fact, it is becoming increasingly popular to, uh, to make statements about how Christianity is too white. And that is actual, uh, I'm toning down these quotes, that Christianity is too white. It needs to be made unwhite, that Christianity is uh, too heterosexual, that Christianity is all these things. It's an oppressive religion, and we need to take away all of its components and build it back. That's problem number one. The other mistake we can make is we can look at this philosophy and say, this is a terrible idea. And mind you, I would agree with that. I, th I think this is a terrible way of viewing the world, and it just makes us enemies to each other. But then the next step that can be a mistake is, well, I have to fight against this. I have to, in effect, become a culture warrior and fight against this, this uh, culture that's coming up that is dividing us. But the mistake there is that in wanting to fight that culture, in wanting to fight this philosophy, you essentially also fall into the mindset of viewing other human beings as the enemy. It's just the opposite side of the coin. You still become a culture warrior, just on a different side. And this is an increasing problem in Christianity today, particularly uh, in the Western world. Now, uh, so regardless of what decision you make, it becomes an us versus them mentality. It becomes tribalism again, fighting against either those who agree or disagree with this philosophy. We can end up falling into that trap. And I think what's discouraging is that we as Christians, we want to help everyone we can. So irregardless of anyone's, uh, any of these categories, our desire should be to want to help all people. And in fact, this is the same mistake that the Pharisees made. The Pharisees were given specific laws, or the Jewish people rather, were given laws to make them distinct, to make them stand out from the other uh, groups around them. And the purpose of that was so that as the uh, other nations looked on at Israel and they were prospering, they would be able to ask, what is it so, that is so different about the Jewish people? And the Pharisees instead, they took those laws and they took that covenant and they made it exclusive to them. They made themselves their own tribe. And they completely cut themselves off from all of the Gentiles to the point where they wouldn't eat with a Gentile. They wouldn't go into the same room with a Gentile. That's how exclusive they became. That's how us versus them they became. And what did they lose in the process? They lost their mission to save lost souls. In viewing other human beings as the enemy, in viewing them as uh, people to fight against, they had completely lost and abandoned their mission. And Satan was laughing because he'd been completely forgotten as the true enemy. And he'd been able to pit 
Christians or the Jews and the Gentiles against each other. And today he tries to do the same thing. tries to pit Christians against other Christians, against other people in society, whoever it is. I don't think Satan really cares as long as the attention is taken away from him. So how do we respond to the trap that Satan has put before us? Satan has put out a lie. He's put out this lie that humans are the enemy instead of him. So how do we respond to this lie? If you're still in the book of Ephesians, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We read again from the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul is going to give us the solution to this trap. The solution to this mindset that we we mistakenly fall into sometimes. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. For he himself, that is Jesus, he himself is our peace who has made both one. Who are the both? The Jews and the Gentiles. He has made the Jews and the Gentiles one. And he has broken down the middle wall of separation. I love the fact when you look at that uh, slide, what, is, what inevitably happens when we place people into categories? We put up a wall between each other. We put up dividing walls. And we say, this is where my group ends and this is where yours finishes. And yet Jesus here, he comes and he breaks down the wall. He destroys the lie that Satan has created that there is any middle wall of separation between different people. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that's a fancy word to describe conflict or anger or uh, contention between two parties. He's abolished the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. What does Paul mean by the law of commandments contained in ordinances? We just... Uh, described that with the Pharisees. God had given these specific laws to the Jewish people and the Pharisees, instead of using those as an opportunity for witnessing, which is what God had intended them to be, they used to make a dividing wall. They used it to separate themselves from others and to make their own tribe. And we read that at the cross, Jesus, he abolishes these uh, laws that were meant for the Jewish people and he says... There's no dividing wall anymore. There is no division. Instead, I'm making a new man from the two groups. And in so doing, bringing peace. I, even I find that interesting, that Jesus brings peace. Tribalism always leads to conflict, to death, to revolution. And yet Jesus' method is to bring peace between groups. Verse 16. That Jesus might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. At the cross, Jesus puts to death the lie of Satan that there is enmity between humans and other fellow human beings. The true enemy has always been Satan. And yet Jesus at the cross says there is no more enmity between humanity. Instead, he reconciles the Jew, the Gentile, every person from every nation into one body through the cross. And verse 17, he came and he preached peace to you who are afar off 
and to those who are near. I really love that. Jesus, he's not looking at people as categories. He doesn't care if you're a Jew, if you're near, if you're a Gentile and you are afar off, as Paul puts it here. Jesus witnesses to everyone. And I think the reason is because he knew other humans were not his enemy. He witnessed to everyone. And verse 18, for through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. That is amazing. That is incredible that Jesus, through his death on the cross, brings all people of all nations into himself. And he says that we all have access to the Father. I find it interesting that twice Paul uses the word enmity to describe human beings having enmity with each other. But let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Keep in word that mind, enmity. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God has made a beautiful garden. He's made a perfect place without sin. And now Satan has corrupted it. He has deceived Adam and Eve into taking matters into their own hands, rebelling against their creator. And God effectively... Satan has effectively declared war. This is the beginning of the spiritual battle that we're engaged in. Satan has declared war against God and against humanity. And now God has the opportunity to make his declaration, his mission statement, if you will, for this battle that is going to ensue. Uh, We'll begin from verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, that is Satan, because you have done this, that is deceived Adam and Eve, You are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And here is the the key part. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed. Right from the get-go... God establishes who the two parties in the spiritual battle will be. Satan has declared war, and Jesus, uh, God, he says, there's going to be enmity between you, Satan, and the offspring of Eve, of all humanity. God tells us plainly and clearly who the real enemy is, doesn't he? The clear enemy has always been Satan. From day one, when sin was introduced and the battle began, Satan has always been the enemy, and from day one, Satan's tactic has been to trick us into thinking that other human beings are the problem, that we have enmity with other people. And this, this is amazing. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here, God not only declares his mission, his mission statement. He doesn't only make his uh, counter-declaration of war to that of Satan. But God also has the audacity to say, I'm going to win this war. That I'm going to win the battle. He predicts the outcome of the battle on the first day that it begins. And I find this incredible. For those who uh, may not have heard this for the first time, I hope this impacts you as much as it did me when I first realized this. 
says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When Jesus died on the cross, when he took all the sins of the world, when he won the victory against Satan, of course his feet were nailed through to the cross. His, uh, his heel was bruised. But it's interesting the place that Jesus was crucified at. He was crucified on a hill called Golgotha. And the meaning of that word, uh, the writer Matthew tells us that Golgotha was called the place of the skull. It was there that as Jesus, his heel was bruised, he was also crushing the head of Satan. And it was at that moment that even though God had said that there would be enmity between, God, uh, between humanity and the serpent, Satan had made this lie for centuries, for millennia. And yet here at the cross, Jesus destroys that lie. He destroys the, the trap, the trick that Satan has made. And he brings peace between humanity. He destroys enmity between humanity and instead brings peace and reconciliation. Let's quickly turn to Galatians chapter 3 and verse uh, 26. And this sums up really what all of this means for us. The fact that Jesus has destroyed the lie. The fact that we can all have reconciliation and open access to God can be summarized here in Galatians chapter 3. Let's go to verse uh, 26. For you are all sons of God. Through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. Now, uh, this verse is often misused to describe and say, well, look, God doesn't really care about the differences about people. But I think that's actually the opposite of what the verse is suggesting. The verse is suggesting that God loves us for our uniqueness, for our differences. God doesn't necessarily see those categories, but he embraces everyone in spite of all those differences that make us uh, unique. And I can't help but think as I look at that verse, the categories in there, one could almost say, are that of oppressor and oppressed. The very philosophy of Karl Marx. For example, Jew and Greek. Greek probably should be better translated to the word barbarian. This was the perception of the Jews to anyone who was not Jewish. They were barbarians. Then he says slave and free. The slave clearly... Uh, we would categorize as a sort of oppressed group. And the free person, he's fine. He's living life up. He would be the oppressor. And then we have male and female. In the Greco-Roman world, it was great to be a man, but women did not have the same civil rights that were afforded uh, to women today. And so when you look at this list, you could easily apply the mindset of that of Karl Marx. Here is a list of different oppressors and uh, oppressed, Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free. And yet the Apostle Paul has zero interest in that. He says, in fact, that it's really not relevant. 
and that God is giving access to everyone, regardless of their social standing in society, regardless of where they come from, regardless of their gender. God is not interested in the false categories that we make up. He's not interested in these dividing walls that we've put up. But Jesus has destroyed that dividing wall. And now there is access open to everyone. The goal of the Christian is to save lost souls. And so that means that everyone is our mission field. Regardless of who they are, where they come from, everyone is our mission field. And everyone is someone that we should not view as our enemy, but as a soul that needs to be saved. So here, just quickly, uh, some practical ways that we can avoid falling into this trap. Because it's very easy, it's very difficult to go uh, through your day-to-day life when we're constantly being bombarded by so many things to not sometimes fall into this trap. So here are some suggestions I have and then we will uh, conclude. Number one, take some time off from the news. Um, The news is very political and the news uh, often polarizes people. And uh, just... Last uh, two weeks back, I was at summer camp with basically zero internet access. And when I came back, um, Dad asked me, "Hey, did you hear about Iran? Iran? Yes, yeah, you know, American Iran. American Iran. I was away for a week, and <laughs> suddenly this came up in the news. But it didn't actually affect my life at all. Not knowing about the news for a day or two didn't have any adverse effects to me. And to be frank, my knowledge of what was going on." doesn't really impact the situation. I can't really have any impact. So it's actually quite healthy to take some time off every now and then. And the same goes for politics. Politics is inherently very tribalistic. It's about one party versus the other. And uh, as Christians, it's important that we have a say in uh, what goes on in our society. It's inevitable that we're in some way uh, involved in politics just by being citizens of a country. But It's very easy to sometimes confuse our faith and our religion with politics, with a political party or person. So I think it's healthy as well to every now and then take some time off from politics. And I did this yesterday, actually. Um, I was just uh, relaxing and watching some videos on YouTube. And I was watching some about politics and I thought to myself, you know what, I don't really need this right now. It's not really benefiting me in any way. And if anything, it's just making me feel, again, anger towards people who disagree with my political opinions. That doesn't really, that's not helpful. And that clouded my vision of the mission. So, yeah, it's a good idea. Commit every day to God. If we begin our day with prayer and say, God, today I want an opportunity to save a lost soul, our whole mindset now is changed. It's all about the mission. Reflect on your conversion story. Uh, when we realize and when we remember that we were sinners who had a debt to God and that through God's grace we were saved, we'll look at other people more charitably. We won't look at them and go, oh man, look at these evil, sinful things that they're doing. We'll instead look at a lost soul that we can help introduce them to the person who can pay that debt and experience that same joy that we have. Listen to other people. I've been doing this a lot recently as well. Listening to people who I disagree with. Um, it can be difficult sometimes. 
And I've been reading lots of articles and listening to podcasts to people who I vehemently disagree with. Uh, and I barely can find any common ground. And yet I'm doing it so I can try and understand the minds of these people, the motivations that drive them. Because if I fail to understand what it, the, why it is they think the way they do, I'm going to struggle to witness to that person. So listening to other people uh, also shows that you care. That's one of the steps in Christ's method alone. When we listen to people, whether we agree with them or disagree with them, we at least show that we care. And uh, we want to engage with that person. And number six, talk with them. Have dialogue with people as well. Uh, you can listen, but also feel free to contribute. And do it in a way that is face-to-face. -face. Uh, one of the biggest problems that people consistently have is talking about other people behind their backs. And the equivalent of that today is probably doing it on social media. People will slam uh, others on social media because it's very easy. You don't have to see that person face to face when you make that comment. Uh, back in the day, it was you would write something in a journal about the other person. Uh, back when there were some debates going on in our own Adventist history, parties would write articles about the other person and why the theology was wrong, but they never sat in the same room with each other to talk things out. And Ellen White herself recommended, don't keep writing articles, don't keep talking behind each other's backs. Sit in the same room, talk with each other face to face, and listen, and maybe you can come to some sort of agreement. So those are just some practical tips that I could think of for ways in which in our day-to-day -day life we can try and avoid falling into this trap of viewing people as our enemies and falling either side of this philosophy that is everywhere in our world. The church is to be united together in our mission. And we have one mission, to save lost souls. The mission of Satan is to stop souls from being saved. And one of his main ways is to divide us, to make us believe that there are tribes, to make us believe that the dividing walls that we've put up are real, they're tangible, and they're important. And yet Jesus has destroyed the lie of Satan. Through his death on the cross, he has made all people one in the body of the church. Through his death, he has achieved salvation for everyone. And as he crushed the skull of Satan, and as his own heel was bruised, he destroyed those dividing walls that separate us. So the challenge to us is, will we live in the reality that Jesus has created for us through the cross? Or will we continue to live the lie that Satan has propped up for us? We can choose to be distracted, choose to uh, lose focus of who our true enemy is and lose focus of our mission. Or we can live in the reality that Jesus has created, that all lost souls are our mission field and that we want to bring everyone into the kingdom of God.